Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Tired of reading news stories with catchy headlines but no substance? Check out The Information. The Information is a publication that breaks the most important news and trends about technology. They've published hundreds of stories on Uber, Snap, Facebook, and more. For access to high-quality journalism, try The Information. Go to theinformation.com SPP to sign up for The Information's free weekly newsletter and get five free days of their afternoon tech briefing. That's theinformation.com SPP a podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, as always. Thank you. So let's get into it. I am happy to have on the show today, Bob Rosen. Now, Bob is a leadership expert, and I want to caveat this because I really don't love talking about leadership anymore. I just, it's been overdone. It's simply been overdone in my world. Now, part of that might be because I'm so deep in the field of leadership, teaching leadership, and really great content. But my point is, I feel like it's all been said. So why waste your ear space? But that's where Bob comes in. What we're talking about, although it's leadership, it's really just human psychology. It's about being a better person. And specifically, being a better person through waking up, by being more conscious, more aware, 
more empathic, all the things we all love. Oh, and by the way, it helps you be a better leader. So I really think you'll like the take that Bob has and the direction this podcast goes. Bob is a trusted CEO advisor, an organizational psychologist, and best-selling author. The new book that we're discussing today is called Conscious, The Power of Awareness in Business and Life. One of the things that really drew me to Bob's work is that with support from a multi-year grant, Bob and his colleagues began an in-depth study of leadership. And as part of that study, he has personally interviewed more than 500 CEOs in 45 countries, including those from organizations such as Ford, Motorola, Johnson & Johnson, Brinks, Northrop Grumman, etc. Why I find that important is because Bob's work is grounded in real and real expensive research. And I also love how after sitting down with the most powerful business titans in the world, he's distilled it down to the human element of consciousness. I'm really excited for this. Before we get into it, we are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Also, if you have signed up for the Smart People Society, have no fear. That's coming to you soon with gifts. If you haven't signed up yet, it's still open, but closing soon, you can go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash society. It is for our super listeners and our super fans only. All right, let's get into it as we talk with Bob Rosen about becoming more conscious. Enjoy. We're going to get into, obviously, your book, Conscious, and we're going to talk a lot about leadership today. But I wanted to start out here. You have been really studying leadership for over 30 years at this point. Could you give us a little sense of what got you into this space and what motivated you to be here? Sure. Um, when I finished my PhD at 24 in clinical psychology, uh, I found myself doing an internship at Children's Hospital in Washington, D.C., and I was playing shoots and ladders with a little five-year-old boy who was having some conduct problems, and he started beating me in the game, and I found myself competing with him, and I said, whoa, I may be in the wrong profession. So I went at the time to uh, a headhunter, that's what we used to call executive search back then, and he listened to me over lunch and he said, why don't you do what you were trained to do and stand up? And that was sort of a great gift that I got early in my career that reframed where I could take my knowledge of psychology and human development out into the real world. And I became very interested in organizations and businesses. Um, I remember <clears throat> this may have been in maybe 1987 that uh, I started a little consulting firm and uh, uh, I was interviewing the CEO of Herman Miller, Max Dupree at the time, and I was waiting to see him and this woman was very carefully putting chairs in a room and I said, you seem very committed to your work and she said, well, the CEO is very committed to me. And about a month later, uh, I was at a conference and the CEO of a major insurance company was getting coffee and I walked over to him and I introduced myself and he completely ignored me and I felt like I was a fork on the table and these were two images of two leaders um, with very different 
uh, approaches to life and leadership and their interactions with other people. And I got very interested in understanding the psychology and the psychopathology of leaders in society. Um, then I got a call from the MacArthur Foundation in Chicago. I had written a little monograph called uh, Healthy Companies uh, for the American Management Association. And because um, you got to start somewhere. And uh, and uh, and basically they funded a multimillion dollar effort um, to study leadership and healthy companies. And the rest is history. Yeah. And that in the grant is something I really want to go into, because I find that what differentiates you or one of the things that differentiates you and your company is, you know, you've really done the research. I feel like the field of leadership is just getting overdone. I mean, it's yeah. almost annoying me because I feel like it's like, okay, if you're a leader, we deserve to read about you and research you and understand you and then make you better. But everyone else, you should just aspire to be said leaders. Uh, one of the things that impressed me about you is I found that it was really based in not just a lifetime of work, but in a lifetime of real research. So tell me about that grant, how it sparked the in-depth research of leadership. Well, it was pretty clear um, after doing some initial study of healthy companies. I remember I wrote a book uh, called The Healthy Company. It was my first book, and I was on a plane, and I was opening it up. I had just received it, and someone looked over, and he says, oh, what an interesting title. Is it a novel? <laughs> and, 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 and so the question was, you know, how do you build healthier companies? And, um, and the MacArthur foundation enabled me to recognize that if you don't have a leader, a leader at any level of an organization who doesn't shed light versus cast shadows or darkness on people, um, it's very, very hard to create success. And now, 25 or 30 years later, it's even more impossible that if you don't have a leader who understands that they are running a community of people with hearts and minds, and it's all about commitment and engagement. So what that did was it started a research program where I went out um, over uh, a number of years, and I still do one of these every month, and sat face-to-face -face with a CEO of a major organization around the world. And so I have sat next to the CEOs of Toyota and Canon and Singapore Airlines in Asia, uh, Deutsche Bank and ING Group and British Telecom and um, Ericsson in Europe. And in this country, you know, the Boeings and Coca-Colas and PepsiCo's uh, and the Procter and & Gamble's and the like – to really sit down with them and try to understand how they think. Um, what's their philosophy about life and leadership? Uh, what's their relationship with their board and with their executive team? And what are they trying to accomplish with their company? And really understand the connection between what makes leaders tick and the impact that has on the health of an organization and their financial performance. So I guess I've maybe sat now face to face with about 600 of these CEOs. And, um, and we've brought that knowledge into our consulting and learning business. Um, but it's been an amazing journey. Um, we've done some quantitative research as well. We're just getting ready to publish a new Harris poll that I can talk about a little later. Um, but, um, 
uh, it's been a real treat. I find that each leader teaches me something distinctive based on who they are and how they see the world. But when you start to knit all these insights together, you begin to get models of leadership. And my books have always been about sort of real life stories and new fresh models for thinking about leadership. Clearly, your focus has been on business leaders. But I I struggle with that just because business is, yes, it kind of makes the world go round in a sense, but it's also so corporate, right? It's so monetarily driven. It's capitalistic. And none of these things are bad, but I don't necessarily think they are the perfect representation of leading others. How do you feel about that? What, what do you notice in terms of the alignment between you know, corporate leadership and leadership in general? Well, I think my definition of leaders are people who take people into the unknown and create other leaders, and together they create value, whatever you define as value. Uh, in business, we define value in terms of performance and profits. In the not-for-profit sector, we define value as um, giving back to society or improving the environment or helping the poor or the undereducated. And in government, we define value as uh, providing services and solutions that protect people and make people's lives better um, in society. Um, those, those issues uh, are relevant to anybody. Um, I also think that traditionally we have seen leadership associated with status, um, scepters and crowns and people at the top of hierarchies. But I think we're recognizing more and more that leaders, I like the word leading in a sense rather than leadership. It's more of a verb rather than a noun. And it's something that you do. It's a relationship that you have with another person that helps to make them a little bigger and a little better than you found them. Um, the difference between 30 years ago and today is that those three sectors, the government, not-for-profit, and business sectors are becoming more similar rather than different. And the question is, how do you balance purpose and profits? Um, a not-for-profit organization has got to um, have a bottom line, and it's got to manage its costs within its revenue standard. Uh, government has got to focus on the performance of the delivery of services, and businesses have got to focus on prof uh, on purpose, higher purpose, because higher purpose people and higher purpose companies outperform others. And they also have to focus on sustainability and making sure that they're partners with communities, as well as making things that customers want. So I think those two things have changed over the past 30 years, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I was just talking with my dad actually about this book called The Better Angels of Our Nature. And it's this idea, you know, we see so much of fear and things like that on the news. But in reality, the trend is seemingly upward in many areas. And what I mean by that is towards this thing of purpose, uh, making life better for people. And I think that is a maturity as a society. And that's what you were mentioning as it relates to these organizations. Do you find that leaders are well aware of that at this point, or are they still kind of struggling with the balance between monetary incentives and purpose-driven cultures? Oh, I think we're 
We're, it's a constant conversation that we're having. And if you go back to the very micro level inside of our minds and hearts, um, we are a species that is both self-interested and connected, want to be connected to something bigger than ourselves. And we have both of those qualities inside of us. And I think that individuals um, and companies and countries uh, struggle with the tension between self-interest and other orientation and community interest. And, and I think companies deal with that and governments deal with that and not-for-profits deal with that. But I think the point that you were making from – you were referring to John Meacham's book, yeah. um, The Soul of America. And, and, you know, I agree totally with him that, that leaders can be separated in terms of whether they are – whether they articulate the power of hope and optimism and love – or whether they articulate the power of fear and division uh, inside our society. And the great leaders um, are those who stand on the side of hope and optimism and love because it appeals to people's hearts and minds and talks to our better angels yeah. within us. Yeah, that's a great explanation and another great book. Speaking of all these books with leadership, I did want to ask you, I mentioned it earlier, given your depth of knowledge and real research in this field, what do you feel is most often getting missed in the leadership conversation? Do you feel that the uh, representation of leadership is overdone today? Well, it is amazing um, uh, how many, uh, compared to 1995, it is amazing how many people have thrown their hats in the field of leadership development and coaching and the like. And at some level, it's a good thing because we recognize, I mean, I believe that parents are leaders, leaders of families and the Girl Scout leaders and, and team leaders and church leaders and entertainment sports figures. We're all we all need to help people travel into the unknown and develop other leaders and articulate hope and optimism uh, for the future. Having said that, um, I think there's one thing that we have missed seriously, and it is what my last two books have been about. Um, four or five years ago, I wrote a book called Grounded, and Grounded basically said that in the winds of change, speed, complexity, uncertainty, uh, technology, globalization, competition, in those winds of change, you have to be rooted. Um, you have to be rooted by your physical health, which helps you be agile. You have to be rooted by your emotional health, with, which helps you uh, be aware and to deal with uncertainty. Uh, you have to be rooted in your intellectual health to make you curious and adaptive. You have to be rooted in your social health in terms of the power of relationships and, and connecting with other people. You have to be rooted in your vocational health, which is how do you find that balance between meaning in your life and performance and competition with others? And then lastly, you've got to really cultivate your spiritual health which is sort of, do you have a higher purpose? And um, are you connected to something bigger than yourself? And do you feel a sense of gratitude and generosity? And those people who are grounded, 
Um, it's become a popular word, popular word in our vernacular. But people who are grounded are those who are sturdy enough to succeed in the world. And then Conscious, my new book, it really helps us to figure out how do we navigate through change? How do we accelerate ourselves uh, in a world that is uncertain by definition and constantly changing? Grounded and conscious, to me, is the most important thing that we need to teach people uh, in our society. And everything else that we teach leaders like team leadership and cultural leadership and innovation and managing change and all those things sit on top of this basic fundamental skill, which is being grounded and conscious. That, I think, has been missing. And what I'm really now curious about is, did this come from your research of 500, 600 leaders? How did that jump out to you? And what did they specifically tell you or show you that brought you to that realization? Uh, it did. One of the things I began to notice is that the best leaders, top executives, uh, were self-aware and committed to their own development. And over the last 30 years, that became more and more important uh, in their life and in their success as a top executive. Um, now, how that plays out in, in a, a large organization um, is that if you have a leader who is self-aware and committed to their own development, they have a model for creating value in their institution, whatever that institution is and in whatever sector or country it is. Um, and that it starts like this. You have to get the human agenda right, the values, the purpose, the leadership, the culture, the climate, environment uh, inside the institution. And that enables you to master the operations agenda, which is uh, making what you what you make um, and selling it um, and producing it, uh, which influences the marketplace agenda, which is being relevant in in society in some ways, and making sure that the customers, whether they're citizens or congregants in your church or buyers of Netflix. Um, understand the value of what you're doing. And that leads to the financial agenda, which is the scorecard um, for doing work. And in businesses, it's called profit. And in government, it's called contribution. And in not-for-profits, it's called service. Um, um, so, so those best leaders understood that the human agenda drove their value chain. Uh, and the finance agenda was the scorecard. So I guess to answer your question, it was listening to the leaders, but also applying uh, the knowledge that I've developed from consulting and coaching CEOs and the psychology of what enables people to be bigger and better tomorrow than they are today. So I've done, we've done over 300 interviews here with you could call them leaders in various ways, whether it be thought leadership sure. and et cetera. And I definitely see similarities, but there were also things that made me feel better about me. Right. And what I mean by that is oftentimes they are not as uh, glowing as I might have thought or omnipotent. But I'm wondering if there was anything that struck you as unimpressive uh, on the whole about these leaders or perhaps simply just normal that could let us all relate to these titans of industry. Again, everything that I'm saying today is relevant to 
the web designer who is running a team of graphic artists or a government official who is streamlining the bureaucracy or sending out IRS uh, refunds or, you know, uh, the head of a European operation in business. Um, I think one of the things that I have found is that first and foremost, people are human beings. They have aspirations. Uh, they have fears. They have strengths and shortcomings. Uh, they have vulnerabilities. Uh, but we have sort of run away if you will, from bringing our humanity to work. We've sort of compartmentalized ourselves traditionally um, with work and family or work and personal life. And uh, we've compartmentalized ourselves between our head and our heart. Um, we don't show uh, emotions or admit mistakes or talk about being vulnerable. And, uh, and I think what's changing is the recognition that um, we need to bring our whole selves to work um, and that people want to work in organizations that allow them to be their full selves uh, in terms of how they define their families or um, the full range of their emotions um, or their diversity and creativity in terms of how they define their identities. People want to experience themselves in all aspects of their lives. And I think from an organizational standpoint, standpoint, organizations need to get more out of their people. Um, um, you know, their assets walk out the door every day. And, uh, and so it's really important for organizations to tap into the full potential and the full potential performance of people. And the way to do that is to embrace their full selves. So I think there's a real sort of evolution going on in society about this. Now, having said that, we have had uh, a tendency to idealize our leaders, to make them look like they're all-knowing and all-powerful, or we demonize them. And we rip them apart when they go on the public stage. And I think we need to be more uh, more realistic about people that um, it's hard um, leading a, a group of people. It's hard um, navigating through change. It's hard creating a profit out of nothing. Mm -hmm. it, it's hard to deliver uh, uh, services to customers and customers like those services. And so it's really humanizing the whole conversation of leadership. Thank you for that. I, I really love just to kind of recap this idea. First and foremost, not only are we all humans at our, at our kind of base, but the leadership and the leaders that we, we hold up, they have the same shortcomings. You know, the old phrase, we all put our pants on one leg at a time and all that is true. And that's one of the things that I've learned. And I just want to make sure we translate that to the listeners because it adds to your power as an individual. I can do this. There's nothing special except a lot of hard work. And as we're going to talk about, and I agree with consciousness, this idea of being a essentially a, a more well-rounded, more thoughtful, more empathic human. Uh, and then that is what translates into the ability to lead others. So I really appreciate that human aspect. 
there's a there's a, a a very powerful paradigm that operates in the world today that says that what you do um, defines who you are. I mean, that is definitely true in Washington in yeah. terms of your job title. And you go to New York, and it's a different commercial ethos. You go to Los Angeles in the entertainment business, it's a different commercial ethos. But what you do um, defines who you are. And uh, what we've been trying to do at Healthy Companies is flip that paradigm and say that who you are as a human being drives what you do and how you perform. And so the more, and it reinforces what you were just saying, that the more that you can be yourself in the workplace and in life, the happier you will be. But people hold themselves back. Um, um, I'll give you an example. Um most people run away from the word vulnerability, but the way I see it is stability is an illusion and uncertainty is reality. And every time we breathe, we breathe into a world of uncertainty. We don't really know what's going to happen. Um, and, and we experience life or we experience work. Um, but by definition, when we are feeling uncertain, we are vulnerable to what's going to happen. But we see vulnerability as a bad thing, and that influences uh, whether we admit our mistakes to other people. It, 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 it affects whether we fall in love with our imperfections. It, it affects um, how we show up in the world. And I think that we need to see vulnerability as an asset. It's, 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 it's central to being a human being. And this is becoming more and more important in organizations because it's not easy to find solutions in a complex world. Right. And we got to figure out how to do it better. And I think vulnerability is key. I couldn't agree with you more. One of my favorite interviews of all time was Brene Brown. And it was Absolutely. this idea. Of, and, and I want to tell this quick story just to let people know, you know, I started out in the finance industry. I worked for some amazing people and amazing companies. But the entire time I, f I worked there, and I remember talking to some close friends and family about it, I felt like an alien. And I didn't understand what that was. <laughs> and it wasn't, it was not about others pushing something on me. It was not, it was, I had a fantastic leader. I really did. One of the best managers I've ever had. It was just a bad fit because I couldn't be who I am. I couldn't, I am a vulnerable, authentic curious, sometimes mildly unprofessional person. And it just didn't line up with that environment. So what the reason I bring that up is because we get a lot of emails of people, you know, I don't feel right here. It's a, what do I do? How do I find that organization? And I would love to just turn that question over to you. I don't know if you ever face this. Do you have recommendations for those that feel like, you know, I'm in a good place, but it's just not the right fit. And it feels on a personal and human level that there's just a misconnect. Well, I, I must personalize that and say that um, I have felt that from time to time in organizations with my philosophy about leadership um, because uh, there's a tendency for um, uh, people who have not really understood this human condition uh, the, our human nature and its connection to performance and, and business um, to dismiss um, 
uh, all of the the whole conversation that we're talking about, unrelated to profit, unrelated to making money, unrelated to business. And frankly, I think it's bullshit. Um, uh, I, I think that, and, and so I have really grown to, uh, uh, have more confidence in what I have to say. And, and now that I'm at, at sort of a later stage in my career, um, uh, the world is catching up to what my heart has been telling me for a long time. And so I think as it relates to, to the audience here, um, I think it's really, really important that people spend time in introspection to really understand what is important to them. What is their higher purpose in the world? Um, I, I know that I really didn't fully articulate it until I was 50 years old. And I realized that my higher purpose is to uh, leave people a little bigger or a little better than I found them, whether I get into a taxi cab or I talk to somebody who's waiting on me in a restaurant or uh, the CEO of a major global company. And that was a very important organizing framework for me uh, to understand what my higher purpose was. Mm. So what 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 is your higher purpose? I think secondly is – to really get clear about what your values are, what are negotiable and what are non-negotiable. I mean, um, I mean, we're going through an interesting conversation right now in this country uh, about what is negotiable and what is not negotiable um, by the leaders in government. And there are people on all sides of the political spectrum on that. Um, but people have to get really clear about what they see as their values. And then thirdly is that you have to recognize what are you willing to put up with, um, uh, and 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 when do you need to jump ship or make a move or, as I say, travel from an island to an island in your life um, across the ocean uh, of uncertainty and and take on a new role uh, um, in your life, uh, and so um, and and also. Also, to have confidence that each phase of our lives is another building block, and we learn from those times in our life, and then we move to a new team or a new project or a new company, and we don't we don't reject what went on before. We incorporate that into our, our memories and our lives, and we become hopefully bigger and better tomorrow than we were uh, last year. Bob, I got to tell you, that right there is what I call on this podcast a goosebumps moment. I, I, I get them be, when when something resonates so deeply because that is one of the things, you know, I wish I could tell my 20-year-old self, but also I tell people who email us this idea of instead of constantly worrying, am I there yet? Look at it as a season or a phase and what can you take, you know, what can you learn and take with you into the next one? And I think what's most important about that is the way you progress to who you want to become and beyond is through consciousness. It's, it's what really drew me to your book because the first thing you talk about is go deep, right? Go deep, figure out who you are. Who are you looking at in the mirror? Because you can't go to that next step if you don't first go deep. So I want to start there. I find that the inability to be conscious is often driven by fear. So much of our unwillingness to learn who we are, to uncover what we want 
is that idea of fear and uncertainty, which you base so much of your writing around. Could you tell us um, what you have learned about how fear distracts us from truly becoming conscious? It's a great question, Chris. Um, well, basically, I feel that people unconsciously or consciously live every moment in their lives in fear or love. And you choose. And it doesn't get more complicated than that. So why do we live in fear? Well, frequently what happens is we are born with an innate wisdom, I believe, a sensibility, an intelligence, a compassion. But as we go through life, we create moats around us based on experiences that we have, and we become fearful of things. And over time, that fear gets embedded inside of our minds. Um, there's a part of our brain called the reptilian brain, which is our survival instinct. And it is oftentimes driven by fear and the fight or flight um, instinct that we have. And in this wired and wireless world that we live in, um, it's scary uh, to, to navigate through all this change and uncertainty. Um, so we have to get much more comfortable being uncomfortable. We have to get much more comfortable with pain. You know, so many of us think that the goal of life is to be happy. I think the goal of life is to live it fully. And there are ups and downs. And so we need to get much more comfortable with our imperfections, with vulnerability, with being uncomfortable, with um, and, and learning the tools of resilience, of falling down and getting up. You know, there's some research I stumbled across that said that if a 15 to 25-year-old person has not experienced a major crisis in their life, they are majorly vulnerable at age 40 or 45 when crises do happen and because they haven't developed the tools or the skills. Um, uh, and and, and there's, there's this notion that we, we get very scared of losing control. Um, so I think that in, in, the, in my new book, Conscious, the, um, the Power of Awareness in Business and Life, I talk about the importance of um, conscious by saying this. Many of us grew up in the paradigm of being smart. You, you're, the goal was to be the smartest person in the room. And smart has become table stakes. Um, the goal now is to become the most conscious person in the room. And I define conscious as, are you aware of yourself? Are you aware of others? And are you aware of your surroundings? The problem is that many of us are not conscious enough. And, and so, so what do I mean by that? Well, they're not aware enough in terms of being too shallow, they haven't gone deep enough inside themselves to figure out what is really going on inside your mind and heart. Um, they're too narrow. They live in steel bunkers and they can't see over the horizon and, and they can't think big. Um, they're too, too safe. Uh, they're afraid of change and uncertainty, which is reality. And, and, and lastly, they're too small. They're uncomfortable with their own power. They don't stand up and, and speak their mind and put a, put a, a stake in the ground around their principles. Um, and they're not bold in their, in their ability to change their lives. If you are too shallow, too narrow, too safe, and too small, it's very hard to live a happy life and a successful life.
So the book is organized into these four practices of go deep, think big, get real, and step up. And go deep is fundamentally so important because it helps you become more aware and more comfortable with who you are. Well, that was put so perfectly and so concisely. I'm just going to turn it right back to you and say, how do we go deep? For those listening who want to take away on, you know, yes, I want to become more conscious, but I want to become more aware of myself because that is the step. People have heard me through 300 episodes talk about the only way to become who you want to become is to first know who that is and who you are. And so what I'm trying to, to ask you is, what are the best things you can recommend to those other than read the book to start this journey of going deep? Well, I think the first thing is to really understand your life story. You know, we create stories for ourselves. Psychologists call this sense making. And those stories uh, help us put our life and ourselves in a, in a, in a, in a context. Um, and, you know, people are dealt <clears throat> uh, some cards, uh, the cards of life. And one is our genetic predisposition. And we are, we are, um, we are presented with a set of physiological realities um, that affect us. Like one of the things that many of us don't realize is that there's tremendous neurological diversity in the way we deal with change. Um, and, and so people really differ in terms of how they experience anxiety. Um, and much of it is genetically based, but we impose lots of kind of, uh, judgments on our experience of anxiety or sadness or anger, um, saying it's good or bad. But in fact, we're genetically predisposed and we need to understand that. And those who have more vulnerability need to do more. Um, um, for example, um, they need to learn how to um, exercise more or to meditate more um, to manage the anxiety associated with the life changes that we, we face. Um, secondly is that we are born with a whole set of personal development, early development experiences that are part of us that get embedded in our hearts and minds. And as we enter adulthood, frequently we get hijacked by the past. And when things happen, it brings back old memories, some of which are unconscious, that makes it difficult for us to live in the present moment. We get hijacked by the past. And there's other people who live too much in the future. They're constantly worrying about what's going to happen, which is all based in fear. But in reality, life is lived in the present moment. And so the, the less time we live in the past, we can learn from the past, or the last time we live it too much in the future, we can plan and anticipate, but we can't worry about the future. So learning to live in the present moment is really, really important to going deep. Um, and then lastly, I wrote a book several years ago called Just Enough Anxiety. And in the face of change, we, um, we travel across gaps. And I talk about this in the book. And the gap is between your current reality and your desired future. Whether you want to lose weight or uh, sell to a new customer or do whatever in your life, you have to enter the gap 
And the gap is a transition period where we're constantly learning. And we need to get much more comfortable living our lives in the gap between where we are and where we want to go. And, and in order to do that, we have to manage anxiety. There's some people who live with too little anxiety. It's the face of complacency. It's about stagnation. It's about living in a bubble. And you're not going to move ahead if you're not looking at reality about what's working and not working. The flip side of that is people who live with too much anxiety, which is feeling chaotic, being overwhelmed. And you can't be too overwhelmed as you're traveling through change. And so how do you manage that? The best people, the most successful and effective people live with just the right amount of anxiety. They, and that enables them to learn and change and evolve and transform themselves. But anxiety has been a very bad word in our society, we, we, and, and we run away from it, and we've medicalized it. Um, now, some people who have serious anxiety need to be treated, but I'm talking about the 90 to 95% of the rest of the population. So going deep is so central to uh, being conscious, but it's only one step. Yeah. It's only one practice. There are three other, two other, three others. Oh, absolutely. I just, it, it's one that not only resonates with me, but I know resonates with our listeners just because it is that first primary step. It's the reason the podcast was started to understand more about this world and ourselves. Um, and I got it. So take us on it, a little bit of a, a journey, if you will, down the therapist's couch. Okay. And here's what I mean. You know, you talk a lot about uh, minimizing anxiety, finding that right balance. And again, all this is in the book in much more tactical ways as well. Is there anything tactical you could give us on how to uh, start from that place of love to find the sweet spot in those anxieties and become comfortable with the uncomfortable? Well, I think the first thing is to recognize that we are we are basically good people and most people are basically good. And when they act stupid, they're generally scared. Um, and, and frequently we get hijacked by people who don't treat us very well. And, and I love the, the four agreements where one of the agreements in that book is that 95% of things happen that happen have nothing to do with you. They have to do with the other person, mm. but we get hijacked by that. And I think so having perspective about that becomes really, really important. Um, and, and to, to really go deeper, to understand what are those basic fears? Um, uh, I, I, I am a practicing Buddhist and I meditate, uh, regularly. And one of the concepts of Buddhism that I have really resonated with is this whole notion of attachments, that um, over time we develop attachments in our mind, um, like the attachment to stability, or the attachment to control, or the attachment to perfectionism, or the attachment to the past or the future, um, and particularly the, the attachment to success. You know, there are a lot of people in life that are so obsessed and preoccupied with being successful and they don't realize that they're actually being driven by the need and the worry associated with achievement. And if you're so preoccupied with what you do and not who you are as a person, you can get really tripped up there. So I think um, meditation is really important. Now, meditation comes in a lot of different ways. I mean, there's some people who can sit on a pillow 
and meditate for 20 minutes. There's other people who will just leave for work and take a 20-minute walk around the block. There's others who can meditate in terms of getting present focus uh, while they work out at the gym. Um, there's others who can meditate listening to a piece of music. Um, and what conscious, what the book is trying to say is that we need to bring that awareness every moment of every day in all of our actions. So as we interact with another person, uh, one of the things that we need to do is to be our own drone, if you will, to step above ourselves and watch us as we interact with other people. We call that participative observation in psychology. It's a, it's metacognition. It's stepping outside of yourself to watch yourself in real time. And frequently when we interact, we are so focused on ourselves and our ego while we're interacting with people. And we don't have a perspective about how we're interacting with people. This is all about being conscious um, and, uh, and, uh, and it gets into the second practice, which is to think big and thinking big is looking over the horizon. It's having perspective. Um, one aspect of thinking big that is very interesting, uh, and there's a chapter in it in the book, um, called developing your Google mind. You know, I love Google as a metaphor. It's a learning machine. It, it conducts 1.2 trillion searches every year. Well, we do, and through their technology. And But what's most important in life is to be relevant. So if you are not learning constantly, in fact, learning agility is the most important capability of all because the world is changing too quickly. So what's your philosophy about learning? Where do you learn best and how do you learn and how are you continually reinventing and refreshing your mind? That becomes very, very important. Another aspect of thinking big is uh, to develop a personal ecosystem. Um, uh, you know, if you ask people what's the most important asset that they have, some might pe people might say their brains or their mind or um, their relationships or their their skills. I believe it's the connections, the relationships that people have with other people. It's their personal ecosystem, and the most effective people they spend time understanding what their brand is. What are the attributes of who you are that you want to bring forth into the world? And then secondly, you got to build great relationships. And then finally, you got to build a flourishing network. And I think young people have taught us a lot about building this flourishing network using technology and the like. And how do we combine deep, intimate, face-to-face -face relationships with virtual connections and transactions? That becomes very important. And it's all about being conscious, conscious of yourself in the world. Um, so that's a second, that's a second practice. And the others are, are to get real, which is really about being honest and intentional in your life and understanding your accelerators and your hijackers. Um, uh, I'll give you a quick story. Yeah, please um, do. Um, uh, one of the interesting stories of our time is Michael Phelps. Uh, Michael Phelps had a lot of accelerators, um, his capacity to practice, his incredible standard of excellence, uh, and the like. And he won lots of gold medals. Um, but when he left Beijing, um, his life fell apart. Um, he had a couple DUIs. He had some drug and alcohol problems. His relationships were not so great. 
and he was feeling depressed. And he put himself into a treatment facility, and he's talked very openly about this. And he came out and recognized that he would never allowed himself to be a full human being. And, and so he had to go deep and to think big about new possibilities of who he could become after winning, you know, 33 medals, gold medals, I think it was. So, um, so he recognized that his perfectionism was a hijacker. Um, his inability um, to give himself slack was a hijacker. We all have them. We all have hijackers in our lives. And getting real is figuring out what are those drivers that accelerate us forward, like purpose and faith and generosity and optimism, and what are the hijackers that hold us back. And then step up is really just about putting this leadership, this consciousness into action. Um, so the book lays out these four practices or steps, go deep, think big, get real, and step up. Uh, that helps you become more conscious. And the logic here is the more conscious you are, the faster you adapt and the higher performing you are. Bob, I can't say enough about your ability to um, clearly and concisely discuss this topic. And I can only say that with the depth that you go into in the book, it really can be transformative. You know, unfortunately, I think I've learned a lot of these things the hard way thus far, and I'm still learning through people such as yourself and through these interviews. So I really just wanted to say thank you for taking the time for uh, walking us through this. And I can't recommend enough the book Conscious, The Power of Awareness in Business and Life. Bob, before we let you go, I just wanted to see, you know, what else are you doing out there today? Is there anywhere else you're writing we can read about or do you have other recommendations for us? Hmm. Well, one of the things that we've done is we've taken our grounded and conscious work in the form of workshops, and we offer them inside organizations around the world because we were sitting on all this intellectual property here at Healthy Companies from my eight books, and we wanted to make it available to large numbers of people. So that's one thing that I'm working on. I'm constantly reading. I mean, I love, that's how I learn is I read and um, I'm just finishing actually John Meacham's book. Oh, yeah. uh, and then I've got, you know, list, but I also read, I also read fiction and uh, I'm, I'm reading um, uh, Nelson DeMille's book, The Lion Game, which is the third time that I've read it. And it's a bit, the, by far the best suspense novel. And I find that those kinds of novels take me off of um, the intensity of yes. my work yes. <laughs> and help free me up and, and enjoy myself. Um, uh, so right now we're, we're, we're in the business of sharing our message. Uh, I give speeches all the time. Uh, um, I write all the time and, uh, and I'm sort of at the back end of my career. And, and so it's really about sharing what I've learned and, and helping people. Uh, and I really also want to stroke you. I mean, uh, I love the mission of your podcast, and I just think it's so important that we build in this um, uh, deep perspective about learning about ourselves and learning about the world from early on, because I think that there would be much less turmoil, much less tension, much less cynicism and mistrust and partisanship if we cultivated this learning agility 
earlier on in our lives. So thank you for your work. Well, I really appreciate that. And I couldn't agree more. I feel this, uh, this kindred nature here. And, and I love how you've transformed it into the business space, as well as anyone listening can understand how this could have been a conversation simply about becoming a better human. So it's, it really is one in the same. The website, by the way, is healthycompanies.com. That's your website. The book is Conscious. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Chris. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Bob Rosen. Bob's book, Conscious, The Power of Awareness in Business and Life, can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And as always, if you decide to purchase through Amazon, please use the Smart People Podcast Amazon banner located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. As a reminder, any purchase you make through that link comes to no extra cost to you, and it greatly helps support the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com to check out all the old episodes, to sign up for the newsletter, and just stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast. And make sure you stay tuned because we've got some great interviews coming up. So we'll see you all next episode.